Hi, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It is, uh, let's see, it is the 21st. Can you believe it? It is the 21st of 2022 uh, of, of April. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas. How are you doing? This is episode 112 of my live chat. I appreciate you all joining me. Let me make sure everything looks good on this end, which it does, I think. Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, today on the program, what will we get to? I think I saw some stuff on Jan's coaches, Peter Jan's coaches from UFC 273. Still some talk about that. Uh, but I think there's a little, some folks looking forward to the next UFC event. I saw some stuff on Chandler and Tony. I saw some stuff on Nate Diaz. We'll get to all of that, whatever else is on your mind. Thumbs up if you are watching on YouTube, please. Hit subscribe if you are watching on YouTube, please. Uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? Um, I think that is it. I'll put the subscribe. Look at that joker. Yes, there we go. All right, without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? And we're back. All right. Um, any housekeeping notes? Well, I have been busy. Um, but yeah, whatever. No one cares about that. Um, I do have to send a bit of a congratulations. Uh, I might in my intrepid producer um Othello welcomed a newborn baby to the world not today but I think uh, a couple days ago yesterday I can't keep up with it anymore a couple days ago yeah I think a couple a few days ago um but uh, recently just got home and all that good stuff so shouts to Othello a new addition to the family we really appreciate everything he does here and uh I think he'll be off for a little while but totally ordinary and, and to be expected so shouts to him I hope him and I think him and the wife are doing quite well so very, very happy about that, and um, uh, all good stuff there. Uh, what else? I'm trying to think. Um, oh, I meant to tell you guys. Remember how I, because I told you I'd be honest when it, it happened. I think it finally happened. You guys remember when I came back from Miami kind of sick, and I took, this is, this. is these tests are totally unreliable. I took two rap, no, two or three rapid and at least one or two PCRs, and they all came back negative, and I didn't self-administer all of them. Two of those, both uh, rapid and uh, PCR, were both done by an, another medical professional, and they all came up negative. So maybe I didn't have it, but uh, I was exposed to a bunch of people that had COVID, and um, I didn't get sick from them. So I did get sick in Miami, and so I'm guessing I probably had it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I can't say definitively, I need to get that antig antigen test for when they sort of prove it to you, but I'm going to operate under the assumption that I had it. So there you go. Finally, <laughs> I had a long, I had a decent little run there, you know. I had a long, a nice little run, but it finally got me, I think. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to operate under that assumption, so matter of transparency. All right, uh, if you want to get a question answered uh, with a, you know, at the end, you can put a donation in, and I will take a look at them towards the end. Uh, but let's do about an hour of free questions, and we will start that now. Let's pull this up. All right, all right, let's do this. Okay, first things first. Okay, hello Luke. As, as you may or may not know, Davi Hamosh submitted Gilbert Burns in ADCC Worlds, and this is the reason Burns ended up with a bronze that year while Hamosh took gold. Yeah, but Hamosh was also on a fucking tear. Who did he beat? He beat 
was it Lepre or Leach that he beat with a they were in sitting guard and he did a flying armbar. If you guys have never seen this, this is how Davi Hamosh won the gold. I think it was uh 2017, maybe 2019, whichever one it was. Whoever and I can't remember if it was Lucas Leach or Lepre, whoever it was of the two, a high high level black belt. I mean, the highest high level black belt. And he was doing sitting guard looking up and Hamosh was standing looking over. Hamosh from standing looking to someone from sitting guard jumps and grabs their arm. <laughs> And did a flying armbar that way. Didn't do a flying armbar when both were standing. One was sitting and he still did it. Just, you know, that dude was unstoppable that year. So, okay, fair enough. I ask that to ask, or excuse me, I tell you that to ask you this. What do you make of Chemayev not being able to control or keep Burns on the ground for any extended periods of time using his grappling? While Makachev was able to control Hamosh for an entire round while getting off some good ground and pound and even stopping all of Hamosh's submission attempts. Before they could even get started. I know it's a bit of MMA grappling math. Yes, there's a lot of it. But it seems to me that Shemaev may not have the same level of ground control and top pressure as Makachev. What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, one, I would need to go back and look at Hamosh's tour through that tournament as well as Burns to get a sense of like what kind of game they were employing at that time. I can tell you that from the, the match against, uh, well, I should say the fight against Burns and Shemaev, what I would say from that was, one, I don't think Chimaev was, I'm not going to say he wasn't trying hard, but I don't think that was the, I don't think he was putting in maximum effort there. I think he was putting in a lot of effort. I don't think that was maximum effort, which isn't to say that even with maximum effort, Gilbert Burns couldn't have defended it. That's also not what I'm saying, but I am sort of pointing out if he had done everything he possibly could to get Burns to the ground and Burns was able to either resist it or not, you would just have a much better answer. To me, I think he went up to a point where he was willing to go. If it came easily enough, it didn't. And I think he more or less kind of abandoned it. That's not entirely true, but I, I, there's a little something to that. Again, we talked about how undisciplined he was fighting before. That translates over to that. I think the other thing I would say is, too, some of those takedowns happen along the fence line, which, you know, depending on your game, could either aid or inhibit you. But I think the way that Gilbert was using it, it inhibited him because he was preventing, in a lot of cases, Chemaya. What Chemayev loves to do is getting a ride position that he can then use it for stable control, use it to break and control your base, and then position himself between you and the fence. Sorry, position himself, rather, between you and the fence. He just really wasn't able to do that. Um, but I also don't think he was putting the, the the pedal to the metal there either. So to answer the question, I, I'm less interested in what Hamosh and Makachev were able to show one another. Different weight class, different grapplers. You know, Hamosh's game um, from jiu-jitsu is pretty different, um, all things being equal. I would say, though, that... Um, you know, same thing you learned about. Um, it's it's similar similar to what you learned about uh, Makachev or excuse me, um, Chemayev standing, which was that yeah he's quite good at it, but there are some limits. There are some limits. So like, this is what this is why the Colby test <coughs> could prove interesting. One, we saw that his defensive wrestling was pretty good. Actually, we saw his defensive wrestling was fucking great from Chemayev. That part was like holy smokes, that was good. The uh, the part about um. If he fought Colby, you know, would he be able to take him down? Would he be able to hold him down? Because Colby's not just good at defending takedowns. Colby's good about scrambling and then winning scrambling through reversal of position. He's really, really good about that. 
He's got indefatigable cardio, as we've seen. That's an interesting one. I mean, I think if you're asking, you know, oh, we saw Chimaev just absolutely, like, you know, bust the door down on guys at the level of Li Jiang Lang and then below. Yeah, that's true. And that, you know, the, 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 the short, small window we saw against Gilbert didn't tell us he had the same level of control. To, true. But I would, I would humbly submit to you that like, that's not a really great sample size against elite opposition. So if you're curious about it and you're thinking, hmm, there might be reason to believe he's not going to be so good in terms of what kind of control he can have at that level of the game. I mean, I, that would be on some level to be expected. Now, you're like, well, Habib didn't have those problems, right? But Habib also didn't have knockout power. Um, not nearly the same kind of way that Chemayev does, not even close. So Chemayev doesn't necessarily have to have Habib-level dominance. I mean, this is the thing. It's like for all the differences in their games, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Chemayev's game is different than Habib's. Totally true. Like, there's a real big difference. There's some similarities, too, but there's some real big differences, and yet they want him to have the same kind of dominance as Habib in the same kinds of ways. I think that, like, if you're going to point out that their games are not the same, then you should recognize that the outcomes are going to look a little different and the processes are going to look a little different. And as a consequence, the complexion of the fight's going to look a little bit different. Um, so, you know, does Chemayev at welterweight have Habib-level control that Khabib had at, at lightweight? Probably not. Probably not. But, like, that's not really the point. To me, anyway. Again, it goes back to, like, what did you expect from him? If you expected him to just be this, like, superhero that could come down and even the best fighters in his weight class would be treated as mere mortals, yeah, this is a... You're like, wow, he's not nearly as good as that. Yeah, he's not nearly as good as that. He's not. Um, he's never going to be. But if what you're expecting is that... Um, or I guess maybe what you thought was, and I'm, I can only assume that it would be a little bit better than it was, that he would get, you know, for example, like when John moved up to the upper, John Jones moved up to the upper end of the division, he mostly was able to take still everybody down. The grand exception to that, like, you know, significant ground control time would be Cormier. He couldn't do that. Um, and there were some other guys he had trouble taking down a little bit later in his career, like didn't really attempt it. But that early push, you know, but he before he became champion, like nobody could stop him. Nobody. It, it, yes, there is a there is something a little bit off- relative to that however however i keep going back to this dude he did not fight smart like he didn't he, I, i'm not saying he can't fight smart or he won't fight smart not the claim i'm making but in that contest on that night can you really look at how chamaya fought and be like yeah that's a real educated you know that, that oh this is just how robert whitaker fights i mean you know he he was not he was not employing any sense of of genuine combat sports discipline about how he was apportioning and selecting his offense. I mean, or and, and by the way, minding his defense. I mean, it was just none of that. So have some questions. We'll see what happens next time. I think curiosity about this is entirely justified, but that's the word I'm using, curiosity. You know, conclusions are a little hard to draw. I know we keep saying that about Shemaev, but there, it's just the reality. Like we, there's a lot of, stuff we haven't seen from him there's a lot of scenarios in fighting that tell you about ultimate outcomes and who's the best and what they're good at and what they're bad at and you kind of need to see them put through their paces before you can really get a keen sense of things we're still in a bit of a fact-finding situation as it relates to Chimaev, even as good as we've gotten it with that Gilbert Burns fight for all that it was worth Hi, Luke. I've noticed many fight night cards have been weak recently, including the main and co-main event. 
you think that fighter pay has something to do with us not seeing ranked fighters stay more active? As in, they are not as poor, therefore are lacking the hunger <laughs> they once had. Also, is it worth it to take into account that some of these fighters are truly just prize fighters and fight to support their family, and once they've reached comfortability, they stop? I want to explain something to you guys about this. Now, everyone's going to be a little bit different. Everyone's going to be a little bit different. But I think people have got very much the wrong idea about what it means to grow up hungry, to then earn riches, and then how does that affect your discipline? Before I answer the question about the Fight Night weakness, understand people have been complaining about the weakness of Fight Night cards for going on 10 years plus. Now, I would agree that the current state of Fight Night cards is probably the worst I've seen. I mean, in some ways, you could say it's the best, right? Because if you compare it to like when UFC bought SEG or bought um, when Zufa bought UFC from SEG, I mean, they didn't even have Fight Night cards. So now we have Fight Night cards, and we're just like, oh, these suck. Well, like, even if they suck, this is unequivocally like we have more fights uh, at a high level. We have better MMA at a high level. So like, it's hard to argue about you know better or worse in, given those circumstances. But I would tell you that given the roster, clearly a, a lot of these cards are top heavy, and then clearly a lot of them are kind of quite forgettable. I think that's pretty fair to say. But getting back to the point, this is such a crucial point that I think a lot of folks really misunderstand. The kinds of scenarios that we're talking about when we talk about a fighter who maybe has lost his fastball or lost his edge due to riches is a very infrequent and rare kind of thing. Now, fighters can lose their edge or their you know, metaphorical fastball, or something about the way they fight that gives them their that, that superior conditions for a lot of reasons. They can get a little bit older. They can lose motivation from a lack of uh, success. They can get shop-worn from a lot of beatings. They can get injured, and they're never the same. I mean, there's a lot of ways where, or some combination of all of those, or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of ways where, they, where that can happen. But the kind of thing where someone makes more money and then loses motivation. That is typically a province of someone who has earned a shit ton of money. An absolute metric ton. Something like a McGregor. People want to ascribe that to something more along the lines of a Dos Anjos. Now, Dos Anjos, to be clear, you guys know, I, I couldn't say more nice things about him. I think his career has been exemplary, and I can't believe he's accepted all the risk in all the fights that he has. But I would not... You would not look at someone like him and be like, oh, he has let the riches go to his head. I mean, he might, he, he, I'm sure if you look at the total earnings he's made over the lifetime of his professional career, at least certainly through his UFC run, it probably adds up to a respectable number, probably somewhere in the millions. I don't know where, but somewhere in there. Again, that's over the life of the career. So we're talking, you know, what, 15 years or something like that at this point. Some, some insane number. But that he would not. And I know you would say, well, well, Dos Anjos hasn't gotten to that point anyway. He, he, is, he is a guy who still wants to fight. Right. What I'm pointing out is if you see someone making like $100,000 contra- uh, you know, for a fight, hundreds of thousands for a fight, potentially even like low millions, you know, yes, those can be scenarios where someone can lose their edge. But typically what we're talking about is like next level stardom. Um, Somebody who would be at risk of something like this, and when I say at risk, I don't mean to say that they have, There's that I'm predicting this. I'm merely pointing out someone closer to what Adesanya has experienced would be the kind of thing that would be what you're pointing out here. Now, he may come out and have total, you know, uh, uh, never lose a fight again, right? Everyone's going to be different. 
but he would be someone who has slowly, incrementally got from making not a whole lot to making decent checks to making good checks to, again, relatively speaking, somewhere on the order of what the biggest checks in MMA kind of look like from what the UFC is paying out. Um, his celebrity has grown. He gets invited on the biggest podcasts. I'm sure he gets invited on big stuff in, in uh, New Zealand that I don't know about, maybe Australia too. You know, he's got big sponsors now, Puma. I mean, he is, he is sort of of the level where if he's not careful, that kind of thing could happen to him because he's he has some of those risk factors. True transformation from where he was to where he is. Very humble beginnings to very significant, again, relatively speaking, financial rewards where he's also being, where acclaim is being heaped on top of him and there's celebrity being heaped on top of him. Those are the ones that can grow content. Those are the ones that are, again, anyone can grow content, but those are the ones that I think would be the highest risk factor for content. When you're talking about fight night cards, Adesanya wouldn't appear on a fight night card anytime soon. He is only going to appear on pay-per-views and probably then only in main events for a long time, for a long time, because that's the level he's at. So when you're asking, like, why are the fight night cards weak, you're, the reason that you might imagine, which is fighter pay has something to do with it, uh, seeing, not seeing ranked fighters stay more active, um, as in they are not poor, therefore they are lacking the hunger they once had. No, that, that's going to affect somebody much more significantly higher ranked in the game. Now, I do think there's something to be said that we know, like, you know, I've had some conversations with a lot of folks in the MMA industry, and I'm told from a lot of different places and a lot of different sources, and they all say the same thing, which is that getting a fight made is harder than ever because, you know, I, hey, this, I'm ranked sixth, this guy's ranked eighth, I don't want to fight him kind of thing. So there is something to be said for that, but I wouldn't tie it to fighter pay. And in fact, what I would say is, you should look at the framing of your question. Again, everyone's going to have a role to play here. It will not be one. It will not be the other. To the point that I just raised, fighters are being much more careful about what fights they take. On the other side, I also believe it's simply uh, a way for the UFC to construct their calendar to make the most amount of money and then to create a certain system by which they apportion talent. What do I mean by that? Number one, I think they're making a conscious choice to front load, and this is quite obvious, I think, front load pay-per-views, maybe other cards of significance if they go on ABC with Chimaev and Colby, that would be an example. Front load those kinds of cards and really go all in on them when they capture the most amount of mainstream attention and they, they can earn the most through pay-per-view. And then, you know, we have to keep the roster moving. We owe these guys three, we have to offer them three fights per calendar year. We have to keep a certain amount on the roster. Some people will be on the roster because we want to make inroads in China. We're trying to grow the women's flyweight division. They have to keep those people busy. That's what, the, that's what this upcoming fight night is. It's basically, we owe these people fights. Let's do the best that we can to build a card under those considerations. And let's just keep the chains moving. That's all that really is. And the reason why they want to do that and to segment it out is because if they deliver enough weeks of content and they've apportioned it how they want, like we'll have X amount of ranked fighters on one card and, and however else we'll do it. If we have whatever it is, 50, 45 weeks a year, how, again, whatever the number is, that that's them fulfilling their contract and then getting the guaranteed revenue from ESPN. So the way you framed your question was like, could we reasonably blame the fighters for this, and again, blame is not, not entirely the right word in some of these contexts, but should we point to their patterns of behavior as the reason why these fight night cards are the way they are? Certainly, they have a role to play, no doubt about it. But what I would say is if the product feels watered down, 
that's probably because the UFC made an intentional choice to do that, both in the number of events that they put out to give ESPN enough content, uh, con uh, content to then monetize it with a big deal, and then to apportion those fights in a way that make the most sense for their business, front-loading on the pay-per-view end, and then you know feeding everything else out on the other end. That's why I, that's to me probably the best explanation of why this card on Saturday looks the way that it did. This is the leftovers they have to keep busy. And that sounds disparaging to the fighters. I don't mean it that way. But what I'm trying to point again, because they have some good fighters on there. Andrade is on there. Macy Barber is on there. Uh, Lando Venata is on there. A great fight with Lando Venata and Charles Jordan. But th they are pieces where they could be plugged into a lot of different shows. Um, the ones that have to get premium placement, they are not even under consideration for stuff like this outside of perhaps Andrade in that main event. And again, you know, it's not like she is able to demand necessarily a whole lot from the organization. This is a conscious choice of content curation by the UFC, along with matchmaking difficulties that probably explain where you get. Do you think the sport of MMA will keep evolving at a higher rate as the sport matures, or will it eventually flatten out and get perfected? For instance, boxing is changing at a very slow rate now because the sport has been around so long and coaches have maximized the game. But for other sports, such as basketball and football, the sport is still evolving tremendously. Even as close as five to ten years ago, both sports are so different at the highest levels. What direction do you foresee MMA to go? I would have to talk to someone about this. I would like to question a little bit of the... I am certain that you had better um, access to the best athletes per weight class at a different era in boxing. But in terms of like boxing best practices being better in an earlier era, again, you might have people better executing it in a different era. I somewhat question that assumption. Um, I don't, I frankly don't know enough about it to really to declare to you that I, I have some kind of grand theory that is true and that's widely ignored. I will just tell you that like, I'm, I, I don't know, man, like I do, I do tape study on some of the modern guys. I, I would need to do more historical tape study, but I, I feel like there is a, I won't say a big difference necessarily, but there is a difference in what some of the modern guys are doing in boxing from what I've seen that is not being properly accounted for in the narrative about the differences in eras, right? You had a different era of heavyweight greatness than the one you have now, and you had different kinds of games in many ways than what they had now. And some of those old guys were doing really incredible stuff. But the idea that like there's not been meaningful improvements to them, I don't, you know, in terms of, I'm sorry, that there's not been meaningful improvement to the idea about unique practices, best practices, and, and, a, and a, an evolution in technique, like these things are missing. I'm, I'm skeptical of that claim. A little bit. A little bit skeptical of that claim. Um, but I do think that MMA has significant room for improvement. Now, to your point, at some point it will get slower and slower. We, I go over this analogy all the time. You have what some, if you lifted weights, you have something what's called your genetic potential, where if you ate right, slept right, dieted right, trained right, stayed injury free, and you could consistently build and build and build, there will come a point where the amount of gains you're able to get in a full calendar year will be minimal relative to what it was, you know, let's say 10 years prior when you were a beginner or something, because you are approximating what is your genetic potential. Now, this is different. This is not a human body. This is a, uh, in many cases, a, 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 you know, this is, this is an, an evolving practice. 
which is why I'm skeptical of the claim. It's like, oh, we're having all this evolution in all these other combat sports, but it's missing in boxing. I mean, again, I recognize that boxing was better in under different eras for a lot of important reasons, and in many ways there has been a regression. But the idea that like there's been no meaningful update to best practices, I, that claim I'm skeptical of. Um, also, one thing that we have not really had in MMA, and we discussed this actually on Twitter the other day, one... These other sports you're talking about in NFL and NBA, for example, have had massive, um, and baseball too, have had a massive, they've been massively impacted by um, statisticians. And in the case of baseball, sabermetrics, but all of these major teams in the NBA, the NFL, the MLB, they all employ big time data teams to help them figure out what the numbers are telling them about what they should be doing. You don't really see hardly any of that in MMA. I mean, it's virtually non-existent in MMA. And again, that's going to be harder to come by by virtue of sample size, but one would imagine there could be in the future some opportunity for more of a stat-driven, not approach per se, but stat-informed, let's say, considerations about what to do. And I said this yesterday, and, and, and people will potentially not take this seriously or just not take it seriously enough, but I really believe it's quite true. One of the biggest stories that we really aren't talking about is a lot of the world's best fighters do not fully know the scoring criteria. Now, you might say, oh, well, Luke, are you saying that you do and that's some kind of insult? It's not an insult. What I mean to say is, one, I have to constantly look them up all the time. I mean, I can, they're, they're, they're confusing for everyone. They're confusing for everyone. They've been updated haphazardly. One state does X, another state does Y. They've been poorly explained by the stakeholders who have done the change. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, perfectly normal, perfectly good reasons why it is true in my judgment that a lot of the world's best fighters don't know. But if you'll talk to them, they'll have one sense about what they think counts or should count or what order it might count. And then there's the reality of how the judges see it. And so I think you can make perfectly good uh, claims about poor judging in accordance with what the judging practices should be, but also recognizing that there's something of a bifurcation between what judges are told to be looking at and what fighters think that judges are told to look at. Those are not the same. And which is to me kind of kind of crazy because again, you could make all kinds of claims that they could fix all of that. They could have a very clear understanding and it wouldn't really change a whole lot about anything potentially, but it seems to me that like if you're competing at a sport in a high level, having a very keen sense of what the judges might be looking for would be valuable, like really, really valuable, like a valuable to the point of essential, especially when half of all bouts go to decision, right? Don't ever leave it in the hands of the judges. Well, one out of every two times they do. One out of every two times they do. Um, that to me is kind of crazy. So I would say that like, you know, it's amazing when MMA first came around when it was NHB, it was like this antidote to bullshit mysticism in martial arts. Not just the you know the one inch punch or whatever or this style's better than that style, but like, you know, there was a real question of like, hey, fuckface, does this work or not? Your your dojo teaching all this bullshit. Does this is this real or does it does it work in a real scenario or does it not? And what they found out at first was like, oh, one style works and then another doesn't, and then a couple styles work. And what they found is that there's actually a lot of different pieces you could take and make things work, but there are also certain realities that you would then have to obey around them. Why do I bring this up? Because I do think that spirit has been lost a little bit. There's a, now a spirit of like, here's a real meat and potato skill set that we can teach. And let's just teach this. And this will get you pretty far, which is true. We'll get you pretty far. And 
the spirit of innovation that should be driving greater change in certain different directions just isn't really there. Not, it's not as much as you might imagine it to be. I mean, it is in certain ways, but it's not in others. Some people are really trying. A lot of other ones are not. Um, so to answer your question, there is just an absolute shitload of improvement that MMA can make. But over time, um, as some of the greater observations about what is really possible is turned into action, and that action is then spread out across the sport, as more of that happens, I think there's a little bit less room for evolution as a consequence, but even then there will always be room for some fine tuning and that fine tuning at the elite level will pay massive dividends. Uh, thoughts on Tyson Pedro finally making his octagon return this weekend. I did. I heard his layoff was like insane, like three years and he had to redo his dude. Usually hamstring injuries can be a career killer or at least a bad career effector, which is not really a word. Um, and he had to do, I think, hamstring surgery like twice you know he has a difficult road ahead I'm, I'm happy for him that he's back so please don't misunderstand me that's an incredible that he's even back um but that's a difficult thing to work on burns is apparently going to be offered a big fight according to dana white what do you think will be offered masvidal or nate well they might give him masvidal as a reward or they might give him nate as like a to kick Nate on, on his way out the door. Of the two, I would guess more Masvidal because I think rather than like put Nate down, they would rather uh, make some money off of him on his way out. So, um, yeah, I would guess Masvidal. I mean, he asked for Colby. Remember when, he, when BC and I interviewed him, he said he wanted Colby originally, and then they gave him uh, Chemayev, which he, or he actually asked for Chemayev, and then he got it, but... I think that if they're saving Colby for Chemayev, then he already beat Wonderboy. Leon's got the next title shot. You know, at that point, it's, it's – I mean, I guess you could do Bilal. But as good as Bilal has looked, I, you know, he's not a pay-per-view star. I think that's fair to say. Um, so that wouldn't be it. So it would probably be Masvidal. Probably. Hey, Luke, in recent events, Elon Musk bought a leading share in Twitter, bought a minority share in Twitter, but I think he's the single largest shareholder, right? Something like that. Which entitled him to great powers in deciding the company's future. Not exactly. He'd have to buy it to do that. It, uh, and they offered him a board seat and he rejected it. Um, this makes me think with Endeavor Group Holdings being a public group too, would the best way to achieve change for fighter rights before a holding company owned by the fighters to take a majority share in Endeavor. Of course, the funding would be hard to achieve, but do you think theoretically this could work? I mean, theoretically it could work, but good luck getting fighters to give up their, their already limited wages to purchase UFC back. I mean, this would be... You can't even convince them to work together for, for solidarity for you know unionization. You think that they're going to want to go to financial battle to buy out their bosses? Yeah, no. I don't I don't I don't buy that. Tatiana Suarez and Zabit Magomed Sharapov are both 31 years old, undefeated in the UFC and both haven't fought since 2019. Could they both still achieve greatness? 
realistically, if they're healthy and if they wanted. But like, who the hell knows what the answer to these questions are, especially with Zabit, who I think had a combination of both of those issues and one affecting the other. Folks never remember this, but I remember distinctly when Nurmagomedov nearly retired from a rib injury. He had a broken rib. And if you've ever had a rib injury, boy, those will fucking humble you. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, I one time separated my ribs, didn't even break them. And God damn, that is painful. Uh, the only thing that was on par with that was when I had a gallbladder attack. And I, was, I thought I was being fucking eaten from the inside out by some kind of alien that had gone into my body. That was horrific pain. Hor- I mean, I sat for this for six hours and you know it sucked after the fourth hour but i wasn't dying or anything dude i was i thought i was dying off of the gallbladder gallbladder plane in or pain excuse me and then trying to breathe through a separated rib fuck dude you know and i've seen guy people in car accidents that like broke like oh who was it chance rencounter eating remember when he took when he ate that spinning back kick from um um uh god the russian kid um please my brain just does not work anymore Hold on. Now I have to look this up because shit don't work right in my brain. Uh, he fought the longtime fixture there in Bellator. Yes, Koreshkov, Andre Koreshkov. And he broke like five or six of his ribs in one. I mean, I can only imagine the pain that, that must come from that. That is uh, just yikes. So when, uh, that's why I bring this up. It's like. Um, it's not just did the injury do something to your body that then makes the physical activity not what it once was, but more how does it affect your mind and your willingness and your eagerness for this kind of thing. For Zabit, it's like I would imagine he could make a comeback, but if his mind isn't right, then no, he cannot. He absolutely he'll get hurt. You guys know he'll get hurt. Anybody get hurt. Dude, Fedor, Connor, your, your favorite fighter, if their mind is not right, they're going to get hurt. Because the other person they're fighting is going to be in their tooth and nail um, going after him. For Suarez, she still seems to want it. And I think she had a big lead on the division. And if she can get healthy, I think she will maintain a big lead on the division. But between neck injuries and knee injuries, it's not necessarily at the moment encouraging. I really like Tatiana. I think very highly of her as a person and as a competitor. And I really, really hope she gets back. But I'll say that like at 31, windows closing, man. Time is, time is right now. Time is right now. Um, what can Bellator realistically do to raise their public profile? They're simply terrible, as <laughs> person writes, at promoting slash raising awareness of their events and their tournaments aren't doing it either. Yeah, I would say a few things. One, as a disclaimer, I realize that I work for CBS or Paramount. I work for Paramount. Um, and I work obviously on occasion for Showtime. So whatever I'm about to say, I do not speak for either of those entities. That should be clear already, but I'm just going to make that clear. I would say a couple things. One, I think they got to have less events. Um, you know, like for example, this weekend, it's a big Bellator weekend and I'm excited about it, dude. And the main events, both weekends, great main events, happy about it. But there's, in my opinion, in my opinion, I don't see the need for two cards. I think you could fold that into one card. And it would be already a lot better. Think about, so for example, if you had, if you had, there's two cards this weekend, Bellator 278 and Bellator 279. 279 is the better of those two cards. Listen to this card, right? So this is the card. This is the better of the two. Cyborg versus Blenko in your main event. Not the greatest fight, but that's fine. Archuleta versus Stotts. Fire. Horiguchi versus Mix. Fire. And then McFarlane versus Kish. Kish, excuse me. Fine fight, right? It's fine. Imagine if you had, you could add to that 
Velazquez versus Carmouche, right? How much better would the card be? Be all, it'd already be an upgrade, and you wouldn't have this other product, which would not be bad per se, because you got the two other good fights from there you could put on here. But imagine if you took the best fights, the two play-in fights, so the two uh, um, fight in to the bantamweight turning ones, the Lugo and Sabatello fight, and the other one. If you imagine you had all of that on one card, and then you could stack it. I just feel like you would get a lot more bang for your buck. So I think the first thing is they just have too many events. That's my personal opinion. I think the second thing is they don't. I don't see a ton of effort at pre-fight promotion from them. I'll just tell you candidly. You know, my phone doesn't really ring, and I know a lot of people's phones doesn't really ring about um, stories being pushed. Now they have in the past, and maybe the fact that I have <laughs> said no more often than I've said yes has impacted that. But I, you know, when I was in New York. Um, Bellator and they've all and I'll say this they've always been really good about my requests I, I, I like watching Bellator's product when I was in New York they would bring guys by all the time famously from BC being very upset they put Fedor in that seat but Chael would come through a lot of guys would come through they're very very good about that when you ask but it seems like it's very much more of a they'll wait for the phone to ring versus hammering the phones and moreover I just don't see a, a ton of like pre-fight um, content either in the form of I don't see a lot of pre-fight dynamic content that can really capture the fans imagination you know the Bellator brand I think um, this is a difficult one like what is the state of the Bellator brand I, I think that when Coker says that their roster is stronger than it's ever been I, I agree with that or at least in a large part I agree with that but I would also say that the space that Bellator occupied used to be a little bit more significant than it is now. Two things have happened. One, UFC's popularity has grown even more, let's say since 2014, right? This was when um, Coker took over for it, 2014, uh, which was a giant coup and revolution. And by the way, it was what was very much welcomed at the time because at the time there was not much of an appetite for, for tournaments in the way that Bellator was doing them. And I talked about it recently. PFL was like, oh, yeah, some guys will be in our tournaments and some guys won't. And no one batted an eyelid. When Bjorn Rebney did that, he lost his job for it. Different situation, different time. But still, pretty similar moments. Um, but what I would say is the growth of the UFC has pushed out their profile a little bit. And then the growth of PFL has also pushed it out. To me, the claim that Bellator is the number two promotion in the world is debatable. Very debatable. Um, I think that their roster is probably the second best one that I could see top to bottom, like who comprehensively has the best kind of roster. But that kind of question was much more fruitful, you know, 12 years ago when it was Strikeforce, where Strikeforce had a much higher share of elite fighters uh, at the time because while UFC was still the dominant brand, it wasn't nearly as dominant relative. UFC to Strikeforce was not nearly as dominant as UFC to Bellator. The, like, they're not equivalent organizations. Um, this isn't to romanticize everything Strikeforce did because there was a lot of stuff they did that was not great. But they're not equivalently positioned in terms of their significance in the industry. And because one has hung on pretty long time and can still get some decent talent. BKFC is still around and can get pull decent talent. Um, PFL has really leveled up from where they were. Dude, you know, is Bellator the number two organization in the world? It could be, but that's, to me, quite debatable. Quite debatable. So I think the brand has suffered a little bit by virtue of some of these other players and then some changes in the marketplace. To me, they need to really tighten up the product, put their best foot forward, and I think they need to hammer 
and get out in front of this stuff and really tell the stories of the athletes. Like when the fights come around, I feel like I rarely know what's happening between these athletes. Um, and, you know, I'm sure if Bellator PR sees this, they'll be like, well, Luke, you know, you reject this advance and that advance, which is probably true. There could be more to be said. But the, the question that often ends up happening for an editor or someone like me is it's and this is also probably just modern media generally. If I wanted to, I could write a stupid post and put out a stupid video about Connor's tweets and it would do pretty well. And I could put out a video about some of Bellator's best stuff, and it might do half that, if that. Um, and so Bellator's now caught in this loop where, you know, um, now that the brand is not what it once was, again, relative to Strike Force or relative to even, let's say, five, six years ago, something like that, that um, an editor is going to make a much more difficult call about what to cover by virtue of what rewards that it offers, but then they can't get ahead because that 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 curation process and that curation, I should say, principle is already being used against them so that now growth to getting back to where they were is going to be, I think, even a little bit more difficult. Um, I think that their product, when packaged correctly, is excellent. But when it's not like any other product. I mean, like, like, can you say the UFC's product is packaged all that well this weekend? No, it's, it's not like Bellator's card is significantly better this weekend, but, um, I, I agree that there is definitely some work to do if what any of the goals are with Bellator is to bring it back to its previous level as clear number one or clear, clear number two, excuse me. It is, it is not clear number two at all. Uh, Luke, I want to thank you for the extremely indulgent and thought-provoking extra credits video you made on the Munir Lazez situation and the role of and structure of MMA journalism community in general. It feels like we as fans also need to shoulder some of the responsibilities for the current type of media coverage. The majority of fans don't really seem to care about actual news, fighter pay, cost of being the king, blah, 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 and are more inclined towards MMA's carnivalistic side and simple pleasures derived from the blood and guts aspect of fights and most of the media outlets simply cater to the fans' interests. Clickbait is real. Uh, my question to you, Luke, how do you see a fight between Colby and Gilbert? I think Gilbert probably wins that if he can stop the takedown long enough. Um... Luke, I recently commented on a Twitter post that maybe Crone Gracie has not fought for nearly two years due to a potential failed drug test and choosing not to disclose it. Uh, Guilherme Cruz replied to say that this is not how failed drug tests work and that the fighter still has to disclose a failed test. Is that true? I thought if it was failed through USADA that they had a choice um, to disclose it. Um, but I think two things happen. Once, if they accept... If they accept the punishment, I think that can go public. Yes, that's right. So if they, I don't know what the word is, not charged because USADA is not law enforcement. Much as USADA would wish they were law enforcement, they're not law enforcement. Um, 
I think if you get flagged for something and then like provisionally suspended while you're working it out, no, you don't have to tell. And I think if you're ultimately exonerated, it's still your choice. But I think if you eventually get found um, that you have or you, you admit to whatever what had happened, I think then it goes public. Also, remember, if you get flagged by the commission, they'll just fucking rake you over the coals. So if he's been out for two years because he's still fighting it and nothing has been... And again, we're just speculating here. There's, I don't know if there's any evidence for this. So we'll just say Fighter X. If Fighter X has been out for two years because even in that two years they're still fighting it, then yeah, there wouldn't be have to be a disclosure. But I think once they accept punishment or if they go to arbitration... Pardon me. If they go to arbitration and the arbitrator... Jesus, hands down a sentence, then they have they they're then legally bound by it, and it goes public. Luke, can you shed some light on how the red corner or blue corner is assigned to fighters? Do the commission make this decision? I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question. You know what? I'm going to look into that one. That's a great question. I do not know the answer to that. Uh, Luke, many Muslim fighters are now vocalizing their support for Palestine. How do you think ESPN and the UFC will react to this, given the controversy of the topic? You know, someone wrote me. It's funny. I don't know what fucking happened to the email. Someone wrote me an email. You guys know I put up that video for Morning Combat when I was talking about the Munir Lazez and Daniel Kinahan thing, and I was sort of pointing out, like, if you have a coherent vision for what MMA coverage should look like, you should email me. And it was very funny. I had a lot of people write me with additional complaints about MMA media or things they thought MMA media should or shouldn't do and were hypocritical about, most of which I was pretty sympathetic to, but not a single person wrote me explaining to me what coverage should affirmatively look like. Paint for me a picture, an editorial vision about what MMA coverage should look like. All I got was a series of like disparate complaints. Sort of goes back to my point, like, a lot of folks think that like, oh, you should listen to fighters because fighters know what they're talking about when it comes to fighting. Yeah, you should. You absolutely should. They won't be the only authority on it, but they will be an extremely important, if not the most important one. Why is it that folks who have been in my position for 15 years do not get to uh, be given not the same sense of credibility, but even any sense of credibility about what we know about what the media business is and what it should look like and how it should be conducted. It seems like this is the only business where expertise is not merely allowed, but somehow impossible that in fact time on the job merely increases in competence. I would say there's a shitload of Dunning-Kruger going on here. A lot of folks who simply do not know how journalism works, how it should work, and how it does in various different operations is the first thing I would say. And the fact that not, a, not one person who wrote me, not one, not a single one could come up with a coherent vision for what an editorial practice might look like, I think is quite telling. Now, to answer that point, um, I don't know fuck I was going with that, but given the controversy of the topic. Um, oh, yes. So in one of those emails, I, was, I meant to respond to it, then I got the next day and I couldn't find it, and it wasn't in my trash folder, and it wasn't in my spam folder. I, I don't know what, I really don't know what happened to it, but... The point I wanted to make was they had said, oh, Bilal Muhammad shouted out Palestine and the MMA media didn't say shit. And it's like, let me see if I understand this. You think that there is a hypocritical act here happening because one fighter shouted out a wanted crime lord who is hiding out in uh, a government that won't extradite him, basically, or a territory that won't extradite him who was accused of murders and um, 
drug trafficking and any number of other, you know, serious crimes. That is equivalent to shouting out uh, the people of Palestine who live under occupation, military occupation, and during Ramadan in the Al-Aqsa Mosque have been gassed and beaten by Israeli military. These are equivalent things to you. This is what I mean when I say there is just a complete inability for basic moral reasoning through wide swaths of the community. You will note that Bilal Muhammad did not shout out the Palestinian Authority or Hezbollah or Hamas. He did not do that. He shouted out the ordinary suffering of ordinary people. Nothing ordinary about the suffering, I suppose, but the, the consistent, the day-to-day injustices that they live under. And a lot of folks like, I don't live under any injustice. This is so great. Yeah, okay. I mean, you're allowed to believe whatever you like. All right, you're allowed to do that. Certainly, it's a free country. You are going to have a very hard time making an evidentiary case that the nearly 7 million, uh, I think this actually might be more than that, between 5 and 7 million between um, the West Bank and uh, Gaza, especially Gaza, which is, as it's been widely described, an open-air prison, you're going to have a very difficult time making a moral equivalency argument between ordinary people suffering under, for certain demographics, 40% plus unemployment because they cannot go anywhere. There is no real investment that is allowed. Things are routinely destroyed. And yes, their own leaders are utterly corrupt, feckless pieces of trash who only make the situation worse. You will not hear me defend them. And I think you quite rightly did not hear below Muhammad, you know, say nice things about Mahmoud Abbas or any of those kinds of things. No, no, no. He didn't do that. He didn't do any of that. He just shouted out the ordinary people of Palestine. If you can't, of Palestine, if you can't support people under military occupation or, or that you believe people under military occupation are uh, tantamount in, in, uh, in ethical responsibility to a wanted international crime lord, you, can, you are not capable of basic moral reasoning. You're just not. You can't do it. It is a struggle for you. It is a struggle for you. These are not equivalent things. And no side is going to be perfect, and no side is going to be utterly evil. Everything is going to be a little bit of a shade of gray. I'm sure you know, you can make some fine-tuned nuances to that argument to bring them a little bit closer in moral differences. But even, or, uh, yes, but even then, there's still going to be a yawning gap between them, between, between a, a father getting his sons out of a mosque during Ramadan and being hit with fucking nightsticks in front of his kid for the mere act of being there versus being a wanted drug smuggler. I mean, I, I can't even believe, I swear to God, I cannot believe sometimes we have to have the conversations that we have to have in MMA, but we have to have them. We have to have them. Um, to me, that is completely fucking insane that people would even think there is moral equivalency there. Dana says they are looking to book John Jones versus Stipe for the summer now that Jones' suspension is over. How do you see this fight playing out? What does Stipe need to do? This is, um, I mean, it's every question in the book on this one. Every question in the book on this one. Dude, where is Stipe after the loss to Francis? We have seen Stipe be utterly resilient in coming back from his loss to Daniel Cormier to get two of the three and, and of course, to do it in dramatic fashion in the way that he did in the second one and, and to you know leave no doubt, so to speak. I mean, there's come some, always some controversy with the eye pokes and whatnot, but, you know, really, really turned his fortunes around. Um, incredible. But then he got stopped by Francis another time, and so you wonder, like, okay, are his best days behind him? Probably, but, like, your best days can still be behind you and you can still have very good days. Is he there? We'll have to see. 
In the case of Jones, it's every question in the goddamn book. It's every question. Dude, like, what is his weight going to be? Is this going to be a good weight for him? Is this going to be a good weight for him through three rounds, but then not through five? Um, what's his wrestling going to look like? What's Stipe's takedown defense going to look like? What's the striking going to look like? At what range? How's Stipe going to approach it? What's John's speed going to look like? Is it, you know, I, I, I don't even really know. I don't even really know. I would say it'll probably look like a lot like a lot of John fights. John likes to fight what I call single shot high variance. He throws a lot of single shots. He's not a much of a combination puncher. And if he throws something, the next thing that he throws behind it or later usually looks very different. Left side push kick, right overhand, left uppercut, right leg kick, left inside cut kick overhand right you know and it's just constantly all i mean it, it won't necessarily be side to side it could be two on the same side but you get what i'm pointing out like it just and it's just single shot high variance that's what he really does i think you'll see a lot of that keeping the distance from stipe probably not wanting to lock up with him if he can avoid it something of a distance game but will he be backing up will he be backing up stipe i mean it's every question in the book i think it's probably the right fight to make if you're going to give these guys fights i mean whatever happened to that john jones suspension huh where where was that not that Dana ever promised one, but it's like, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Okay, you waited and see. You wait and saw. What now? Oh, right. Nothing. Okay. All right. Um, point being is, there are so all the time off from John. By the way, Stipe has not been as off for as long, but has been off for a long time too, relatively speaking. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's a crazy fight. But it's probably the right one to make because, you know, John's the best, maybe the best fighter ever, certainly the best light heavyweight ever. Stipe is the most decorated UFC champion and heavyweight that we have. They're still active. You could make it for an interim title fight. I mean, all the reasons where you would want to make it, you want to make it. But, like, how will it go? Shit, y'all. Your guess is very much as good as mine. All right, look, if you look at the nine current Beltor champs, could any of them have a chance against UFC counterpart? Could any of them have a chance? Yes. Did you ever think about the cost... Did you ever think about the cost of having a moderate point of view on MMA topics? I don't know that I have a moderate view. Did you ever think or were you ever encouraged to share more polarizing opinions to attract more viewers? I don't know if anyone ever encouraged me to do it uh, in like an explicit way. I don't know. I always feel like people disagree with everything I say. <laughs> I don't. I mean, is there some kind of consensus where people think I have moderate opinions? I don't think that's what people think. I get. I, get, I mean, I, you know, sometimes it's quite deserved. I think people having questions about my views on anti-doping is significantly more reasonable, and I totally understand that. Fine, okay. But like, you know, I, remember, remember my tweet about Michael Bisping? Hey, Michael Bisping's doing a great job. And this was before he had, you know, a bit of an issue later in the in the in the night. And it was like all, I mean, literally all I was doing was just saying a nice thing about someone. And there was all these fucking comments. What the fuck is this? I mean, it's like, dude, I mean, it's just a hellscape of people who can't, like they go, at least on social media, it's designed to be as nuanced, free, and as, um, what's the word? You're designed to you're 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 you are made an adversary there. Like everything is, you're either with us or against us, and so you get these outsized reactions by virtue of simply being you know just opposite of what someone else says. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really know how the world sees me relative to what you're asking. To be to be quite honest, I 
tend to think that most of my opinions at least drive certain people crazy. Um, I don't think I've ever had, I've, I've had my positions described as like, oh, I can see you, you sometimes try to see both sides. That's great. I appreciate when people say that. But I will tell you that like, if you're asking me how I think other people see me in the industry, I think they see me as um, someone who disagrees for sport or something. Oh, everyone thinks this. I'm going to think the opposite. I don't, it's not, I mean, it might end up being that way. It's, there certainly could be an element of truth to that. Like that there's, I've, I've even said it, that I don't see the world a lot of ways that uh, people in the industry see it. Um, so there might be something to that, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever been accused of having like, oh, wow, it's got, this guy's got crazy moderate viewpoints. I'm 32 with two young girls and I've decided to go for my bachelor's in business administration. I've never been more determined to better my family. Wish me luck. I wish you luck and send me good juju, bro. You don't need good juju from juju for me. If you're already feeling this way and you're already taking steps, you're already winning. You're already winning. Finish the job is what I would say to you. Look at, look at yourself in the mirror and finish the job. If you're really serious about bettering your family's life, if you're really serious about what, what this degree is supposed to mean to you and what it will do for you, finish it. Finish it. Volk was recently on the comedy podca podcast Flagrant 2 with comedian Andrew Schultz. On it, Schultz facetiously suggests Volk should bring him in as a trash talk coach as that is seemingly the only part of his game <laughs> he is missing. That's not a bad idea, actually. It proceeds to write... Uh, about half a dozen jokes roasting UFC fighters for Volk to read. Comedy aside, do you think there is any merit to this idea as a way to increase fighter marketability? I know for a fact certain people in the sport have even done this. So less than being, uh, or I should say rather than being some kind of uh, theoretical practice, it's a real one. Luke, do you think Bilal Muhammad's, this person writes, relatively boring, although highly skilled style will be a hindrance to him getting a title shot? Yes, it always will be. Guys, I lived through John Fitch. I lived through John Fitch. John Fitch had a great record. And at the end, you know, everything kind of fell apart like it does for everybody. But, you know, for a long time, this guy was just beating the door down about who he was. And they finally, reluctantly, eventually made a St. Pierre fight. You know, St. Pierre did what St. Pierre does. But yeah, dude, it's always, listen, you're always going to skip to the front of the line doing the shenanigans. It just, it's the way of the world. Luke, one time you said you don't eat yellow mustard with anything because you don't eat like a Visigoth. I mean, I was kind of joking. Uh, so how does one eat like a Visigoth? You eat yellow mustard, which I realize is a circular answer and not in all what you're looking for, but that's how I'm going to answer it just the same. Uh, Luke, according to Eric Nixick's Instagram, it looks like Cody Garbrandt has made a full-time move to Extreme Couture. What do you think of the move for him and the duo of Nixick and Garbrandt? Well, I'll tell you, I couldn't think much more highly of Eric Nixick than I already do. A diligent coach, a hardworking coach, a smart coach. We talked earlier about people who were not necessarily thinking about best practices and what the future holds and where everything is going and what to do about it. I think he thinks about it constantly. So what I'll say is um, Cody Garbrandt could hardly be doing himself any disservice by going and training with Eric Nixick. Honestly, if I was like a single dude or you know, a high-level fighter and I was looking to figure out where I wanted to go with my life, I'd probably go out there, to be honest with you. That's, pro that's probably where I would go. In Vegas, big team, great coaches, great facilities, 
people who are thinking about the future of the game while they incorporate it into the present. That's what you want. That's what you want. And people who have a detailed understanding of how to get the most out of it. I mean, look what they did for Francis. Not to say MMA Factory didn't, didn't do him any good, but you know, just look at the difference. It's just inc- it's crazy how far Francis has come. That's a lot of hard work. And that's not just Nick, Nick Sick, of course. You know, Dewey Cooper and everybody else on that team, they all do great work. But I'm just pointing out, like, if I was 22 and I was a decent MMA fighter and I was trying to take it to the next level, that's where I'm headed. Um, the thing about it for Garbrandt is... One is his confidence shot. Two, it's a fair question at this point, is his chin shot. Um, and three, if those are the case, can anyone help him? Right? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't have a yes or a no for you. But if the answer to the first two questions is yes, then the answer to the, f- the third one is no. Luke, I think that Leon Edwards is a technically brilliant fighter and could have a very competitive rematch with Kamaru. However, one issue with him that makes it hard for me to pick against Usman is his passivity. It hasn't cost him a loss yet, but he has allowed his opponents back into the fight by not pressing them hard enough. He has lost the final rounds of quite a few of his fights. Is this a valid perspective to have, given how uh, intelligent but relentless Usman is? Yeah, I think it's very fair. We've talked about it before, what I think of his game. I think very highly of Leon Edwards' game, in particular for how he has thought about the future and what I call his half positions. He doesn't. He, he sometimes will go to a full position, but a lot of ways sometimes he'll lock up something that looks relatively neutral or it's actually it's advantageous for him, but he's not so deep in the position that um, an error in positioning could really cost him uh, top position or you know whatever dominant hold he has or whatever everything is very clever half guard one hook in 50 50 in the clinch but then leaning in his weight and sagging in a certain way not going for certain kinds of um, offense it's very very clever what he's done the problem is you guys ever seen like a home video where someone it's like oh this guy robbed this lady's purse and then a bunch of citizens held him down until the cops came it always feels like what he's got going is that he's held someone down until the cops come. Namely, that if you can do that for three rounds or five rounds, great. Like, you win the fight. And you obviously have enough ability to defuse a situation that could be bad for you, put it on advantageous terms. Not like crazy advantageous, but advantageous terms, and then ride out the clock from there. And again, I'm not saying he's stalling, but I'm just saying, like, you know, that's sort of the, 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 the broad overview of it. There's not a ton of effort put into finishing. There's not a ton of momentum in that direction. And in MMA, you have to remember, people always go, oh, St. Pierre went to wrestling because he was scared of the striking. Maybe that played a little bit of a role, but I really believe that's not what happened. What I think happened was in the era that St. Pierre grew up in, getting back to your feet and using the fence to stand was much rarer than it is now. So if you took a guy down, for the most part, they were going to play guard with you. And playing guard, to me, unless you have a very good guard, BJ Penn had a very good guard, but he was a little bit smaller than St. Pierre. If you're just going to do submission defense and then like the occasional ground and pound, that's, you are taking away so many variables of control, that, or I should say, so many variables of chaos in favor of your own control. You can do a lot with that. That's really a, a very smart way to fight. They can't get back to their feet. They can't scramble. Most people are going to have like a purple belt level guard, which is a very good guard. If you're in a street altercation, but if you're fighting George motherfucking St. Pierre, it ain't going to do you much good. In fact, Nick Diaz is a, a high-level black belt. Look at what he did to St. Pierre. Nothing. Nothing. Got to turtle position and got beat on. That was it. Uh, for the most part. So, 
So that to me was not, people were like, oh, he was scared. I'm like, mm. he was taking away the volatility of a fight. That's different. Um, Leon Edwards does something kind of similar. Now, he doesn't do it with just sort of, you know, very amazing chain wrestling, although he can do that too. But he does that in a lot of different dimensions. But the difference is that St. Pierre, when he closed it down like that, I mean, that was a very secure way for the most part for that era of fighting the way he did. In the modern era, it, it was the same problem St. Pierre had, but it just wasn't as pronounced. It's much more pronounced now, which is that, like, dude, if you leave someone in the fight, you're not really beating them up. You're not really tiring them out. You're just kind of diffusing the situation and putting yourself on you know, relatively speaking, somewhat advantageous terms to it, that's a fine way to win a round. There's nothing wrong with winning that. It's going to be hard to beat the very best guys doing that because you're going to have a hard time maintaining control. And you're always leaving them in the fight. They're always there. Not always, but you know what I'm saying. They're going to be there the next round. They're going to be there the next round. That's how Nate Diaz, dude, Nate Diaz got whooped up on, but he got left in the fight with Leon. What did you see? Now, Leon, Leon got away with one there a little bit, but it was proof of concept. Dude, fighting is way too chaotic. It is way too dangerous. It is way too volatile. I think if you want to win a weight class title, even as good as Leon is, to not have another um, part of your game that better establishes finishing opportunities. I think that's the one thing I would say is missing because everything else he does is great. It's great. He's really good. He's really good. Um but that piece is missing, and that's a dangerous piece to have. Plus, St. Pierre was better about going for submissions anyway. Like, even in the Hardy fight, which you could say he was very conservative in, again, relatively speaking, he was still he was still trying to sub him out. So, not even the same. And then, again, took Triggs back and everything, although that was a little bit pre-wrestling like wrestling St. Pierre. I'll do one more of these, and we'll get to the paid ones. If he ever returns, do you believe that John Jones's weight transformation and mental issues will be detrimental in his comeback fight? Thing is, man, they were supposed to be detrimental before, and they just weren't. Well, not the weight issues per se, but the mental health issues. They weren't. I mean, I would I would imagine that at some point it could affect him, maybe this time, but that very much remains to be seen. Who is the artist that drew the pick of you? Uh, yes, Average Joe Art. Check him out. All right, I'll do this one here. Luke, build your perfect sandwich. Boy, that's a tough one. Um, it's a good question. All right, here's what I'll say about sandwiches. I think most people fuck up a couple of things. One, I don't think you really have to have lettuce in a sandwich, especially if your lettuce is like iceberg bullshit. It, it ain't really adding anything. I can see cases depending on what you have for like arugula or whatever, but I'm not a big lettuce guy. I think there's other ways to get crunch and differentiation into your sandwich. So number one, take that shit out. Number two, I don't have like a number one favorite sandwich, but anything like Italian is going to be probably more along the lines of what I'm looking for. Um, or maybe Spanish. Like, God, what sandwich should I have? In, um... So my wife, uh, obviously she's from Colombia. One of her high school friends moved to Spain. And when we flew to Barcelona, um, we met her there because she married a dude from Barcelona. So they just live there now. Like my wife lives with me in America. She lives over in Spain with her husband over there. Nice people. Great people. Um, big Espanol fans. That was, which was kind of funny. Anyway, uh, which is a, a team, a Catalan team. Anyway, okay. Neither here nor there. I remember he was making this sandwich and it was some kind of bread. And then he put um, like some kind of pesto on it. Then he put 
ham, and I'll, let me explain something to you. I don't eat ham in the United States ever uh, as an ethical thing, not because it doesn't taste good or it's bad for you. I'm not making it like that, but the way which we treat pigs for mass slaughter in this country is, um, and given their level of sentience, I mean, they're smarter, are as smart as a five-year-old human, um, and they're smarter than dogs. So to me, the way we treat them is unconscionable, and I refuse to eat um, pork products here. The only time I ever make an exception, and probably still unethical in Spain, is but they're. The, uh, let me just explain something to you. If you've never had Spanish jamón ham, you've never had ham. Um, I, I don't give a fuck what your mima makes for Christmas. It ain't even on. It ain't even. It's not. It's it's a. It, I've I've had nice, like prosciutto here, all different kinds of you know salamis and pork products this and that and everything else it's not it's not even remotely on par with what you can get in spain not even close not even not even ballparkish that's the other part too it's like ham here sucks compared to ham over there so what i would say is for a sandwich here i'm a big chicken parm guy i do love a good chicken parm but that wouldn't be like my ideal sandwich i would just say this probably some kind of fried chicken or some kind of like brisket or some kind of um, like sliced beef. You got to have hot peppers on there for sure. You got to have thick bread like focaccia bread. You got to have, um, it's got to have enough fat on it. So people don't put enough sauce on their sandwiches, right? They put like a thin layer of mustard or a thin layer of mayo or something. It's like, bro, you need fat in this to counteract what all the veggies or the sandwich itself might be doing. But, you know, obviously I would put some, maybe some some cheddar, maybe some Munster cheese in there. Uh, depending on what it is, some kind of different, you know, aioli, which I know is mayo, but it would depend on what was put in there. But the hot peppers would be key. The bread would be key. I don't really have a, a very good one. Getting back to what the guy had in Barcelona. Anyway, it was a piece of bread. It was, I think, like an oily pesto. And then he put the, his jamón. And then he put um, this tomato on top. And I had one. <laughs> And dude, I could not fucking believe how good it was. And then a little bit of salt sprinkled on top too. Shocking. Shocking level. Dude, they've got these... They, you can get some here too, imported, but they, they're everywhere there. They've got these uh, pigs out there that have black hooves. And they f eat nothing but like specialized acorns and shit. <laughs> I, here's my challenge to you if anyone and if you know you live somewhere else this and I don't know if this applies to you but for any any American watching this if you think I am exaggerating how much better the ham is in Spain look at me right now in this camera look at me very closely I dare you to try and prove me wrong try it take that Pepsi challenge fly your ass over there if you can and try that ham there and see what happens. It's going to blow you away. Not even... Do I remember when I was... The last time I was in Barcelona for 2018 on vacation, we were walking around. It was two euro at just one of these like bodegas there. And they had this stand and they had those little cones that we would drink like... Or make like uh, ices in, you know, like uh, ice. And they put like colored... Like a little, a little cone, basically. And instead of an icy in there, they put in like just, just chunks of cheese and chunks of ham. It was two euro. That ham is better than that ham. Not even the very special ham. That ham is better than almost any ham you can get here. So imagine what you, what, how good the good ham tastes. Different level, bro. Different level. All right, let's get to some of these paid questions.
All right. I appreciate anyone who has contributed. And if you haven't, that's okay too. All right. Luke, if weight weren't the issue, how could have how could a fight between Jose and Habib looked like if weight wasn't an issue? Uh, Habib might be in trouble if weight wasn't an issue. And now, and who has the best inside trip in Osoto Gari in MMA? Zabit? Maybe, maybe Islam? We have to smoke a fat-ass blunt one day. Thanks for all the content. Yes, thank you, sir. Yeah, uh, best Osoto Gari, probably, I would say, maybe Manon Fioro, but I would say probably Islam. And then how would it go if Jose Aldo and his takedown defense, as good as it's been, if he could stop like a real 155-er with it, like because, again, he was bigger than he is. Habib might be in trouble in that case. Did you say recently that people tend to grow fond of MMA fighters or MMA spectacle, not MMA itself? If so, why do you think that happens? I did say that. It, it just sort of appears like it's the natural evolution of things, or at least it's the thing that first grabs you. Like, And obviously, like... Listen, what, what really makes you an MMA fan? Probably not the sport itself, although on some level, yes. But really, when you think about it, it's the fighters that you like. It's the guys that you love. It's the ones that, that you care about. It's the, it's the memories that they made. That's what you care about. But I just sort of point out, like, if once they leave, what do you do? Oh, I'll just find someone else to like. But I've noticed it doesn't really transfer that way. People have there's there's real generational MMA fandom and there's some people who last over the course of it because they really love MMA but what I've found is that like oh I'm a huge Chuck Liddell fan well when Chuck Liddell begins to kind of fade and retire sometimes they springboard to somebody else a lot of times they just fade along with it it happens and so it's like dude I mean you can like what you like if you don't want to be an MMA fan for any other reason other than a favorite person is fighting then fine I guess what I'm pointing out is someone's like oh I'm an MMA fan but it's like MMA fandom is very rare Super rare. Like, I'm a fan of MMA. N not I'm a fan of MMA when it's UFC is on. I'm a fan of MMA when certain fighters are on. If your person was like, oh, I don't watch Bellator, blah, blah, blah. You're not an MMA fan. You're not. You're a UFC fan. Nothing wrong with that. You, you're allowed to be whatever fan of in whatever level you want to be. But that's not MMA fandom. That's different. Uh, thoughts on Jalatin Almeida have you seen his next fight at 265 I don't have enough info, info to give you a good answer I apologize for that sir but thank you for the donation uh, do we have any info on what it costs for promo and production for UFC events how do these costs affect fighter pay yes we have all of that um, in fact when Brian Stan was on the MMA hour recently in discussing fighter pay uh Go to at Hey Not The Face. This is John Nash. He tweeted all of the relevant documents about um, costs. Yeah, we have all of it. Who are you favoring intention versus Takeru? I see I'm behind on this one. And why does intention seemingly get the respect he deserves in the greater combat sports community? His star was rising big time until the Mayweather fight. And I don't want to say that the Mayweather fight kind of stamped it out, but... Did the Mayweather fight kind of stamp it out? I just don't remember the same buzz after the Mayweather fight. Now, to be clear, I don't follow Japanese kickboxing nearly, and I know that was an exhibition, but I don't I don't follow that nearly um, to the extent it's a lot of other people. I, I mean, in fact, I'm super casual with it. So if someone else out there knows, by all means, correct the record, and then on next week's show, I'm happy to say what they told me. Uh, but I, I feel like he got a little bit derailed by the Mayweather thing. And I remember people at the time being like, oh, this could help his profile. 
I don't know, man. If it was a competitive fight, that could help his profile. But he just got fucking curb stomped. Which boxer and kickboxer striking system do you think historically would adapt best for MMA strikers in the game today? Ooh. Tyson's peekaboo style, I think, would be kind of interesting. Although, you know, a kickboxer might take advantage of it. But like a semi-adapted peekaboo style, I think, would be interesting. And kickboxer. That's a more difficult one for me. Um, who was a more, would you say, evasion-based high-level kickboxer that we've not fully, that we've not seen transition to MMA? Like an evasion-based guy. Because there's a lot of really good ones. Oh, you know, you could say Jerome LeBanner, Peter Ertz, fucking Remy Wojnarowski, all that stuff. Um, that's... I don't... That's a tough one. I'll tell you who goes like unrecognized. Glaube Feitosa. Glaube Feitosa was very... Does very much not get the respect he deserves. That's not really what you're asking. I'm not sure how to answer that part. Five favorite movies. I cannot tell you my five favorite movies, but I did finally finish The Batman yesterday. You, This is what I mean about like I mean, being told I have moderate opinions. So my kid was d resisting being put to sleep, so she didn't go to sleep till the first night. It, was out, it came out Monday, right, on streaming? So for some, I couldn't, we couldn't put her down until like 9.30. She was just constantly resisting. I don't know if she'd had fucking sugar or I don't know what had happened. But anyway, so I get downstairs at 9.30, and she's going to be up at like 5.45, 6.00. So I usually try to get to bed like no later than 11.30, midnight. Even then, that's pushing it. So it was like 11 or something. And, you know, at that point, I wanted to go read and go to bed. And I was like, all right, we'll stop it right, right around the car chase. I think it was right, right after the car chase. He pulls Penguin out of the car. I'm like, oh, I'll stop this here because I, I need to go to bed. Like I, and I was super underslept already. I hadn't, I'd never caught up from the weekend. I had gotten three hours from Sunday to Monday. Like I was dog tired. I really needed to get some rest. And uh, people were like, people acted like this was some kind of, you know, call the cops on me for something. Anyway, I finally finished it uh, yesterday. First half is different than the second half. Um, it is way too long. It is way too long, and yet the ending was kind of rushed. It's like the guy, I guess if you don't want spoilers, I'm going to give you five seconds to get out of here. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Um, when when the dude blows up all the seawall and the city floods, and then you're like, "Oh, we'll just rebuild." You're like, "Word, <laughs> that's this is supposed to be some kind of cataclysmic event, and in the end, all it means is you'll just rebuild." Like, okay, that's a weird ending. And the other thing that got to me, I mean, listen, it was beautifully directed. It was fucking. It, this is, might be the coolest Batman or the best Batman of them all and the moral complications and how those evildoers saw themselves, saw him in themselves and how they used all of the things that Batman had used, but for nefarious purposes this time and everything else was really an interesting and dynamic twist. But the part about the movie that really kind of bothered me was everyone obviously realizes that Batman is a much more interesting character than Bruce Wayne, same person, but they realize that, you know, the Batman being on the screen is, fun and Bruce Wayne is some kind of difference there but like you know I'm not some Batman expert but I do feel like in having read the comics a little bit 
that Bruce Wayne is a character too. You know, Bruce Wayne is part of the story too. And it just seemed to me that like they really, they completely minimized Bruce Wayne as a character and used Bruce Wayne merely as a context. I mean, what you really got in this movie was Batman and then Batman resting and then Bruce Wayne and what? And I'm not kidding. Two scenes? Two scenes in a nearly three plus hour movie? They intentionally minimized the the life of Bruce Wayne to make more life for the Batman. And they did. They created a very impressive Batman. Like, they did a great, great job with this. Especially in how he's a superhero, but, you know, like, and his gear is cool, but it's not so cool that it's, like, impossibly cool, you know, or impossible to imagine someone could do this. It was, like, it was next level, but not, you know, super sci-fi crazy next level. And there's a scene where he actually takes a tumble trying to chase some bad guys, and it's I mean, he gets all beat up from it. Like, they did, they did an amazing job bringing the Batman to life. But to do that, they made Bruce Wayne go away. And I'm not saying that I want to see a ton of Bruce Wayne, but, like, listen... Every different version is 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 got some better or worse part of it, but I guess I would say, while I loved everything that they did for the Batman, I did not love a movie where Bruce Wayne was a context setter or something that you reference, and I thought that they really minimized him to the point of um, too much. Am I crazy for thinking Clay Collard is a world-class MMA fighter? Yes, you are. Can do it all, has a granite chin. Maybe a journeyman boxer, but not MMA fighter. Well, I wouldn't call him a... Yeah, he might be a journeyman MMA fighter. High-level journeyman MMA fighter. He's certainly quite tough. A journeyman used to be somebody who would kind of travel around to all of the local tough shows and was kind of used by the promoter to be a test for someone or, you know, give the local guy a tough fight, but you know he was going to lose. Yeah, he's not that. We're in a different era of combat sports. He's a much more modern, better version of that. But I wouldn't call him world-class, no. Urah Marine. Urah, sir. What are your thoughts on Ryan Garcia's mindset on not being ready to fight Tank? I see him getting a lot of hate. I think it's a good idea for him to take these tune-up fights while he adjusts to his new coach. I completely agree with you. He's not ready for Tank. <laughs> He's not. If you're going to switch up your style, yeah, you can do Tyson Fury a bit and you get away with it when he goes from uh, Ben Davison to Sugar Hill Stewart, but... Yeah, I did not see a guy in that fight against, um, what was his name, Tego, Emmanuel Tego. I did not see a guy ready for Tank Davis. Mm -mm. So I actually support that. I think you're 100% right. Semper Fi, Devil Dog. Just want to shout out Vanderlei and Pride. Pride was almost gentlemen's fighting before Silva. Like guys didn't punch from top guard on stuff often. Silva came up and had intensity unmatched. I wouldn't say it's gentlemen's fighting when you had Vanderlei fucking stomping on people's craniums. No way. Are you kidding? Which PFL card should I attend? April 28th or May 6th? Also, one piece of advice for someone starting an MMA channel. Big fan. Piece of advice. Don't do what I'm doing. <laughs> Upload consistently. That's what I would say. Um, okay, so let's look at this. PFL in. Okay. All right. April 28th. So that's going to be Bruno uh, Capelazzo. 
versus Stuart Austin, Brendan Lochnan versus uh, Ryoji Kudo, uh, some other ones that are okay. Chris, oh, on the prelim cards, interesting. Bubba Jenkins versus Kyle Bokniak, that's really good. Uh, Lance Palmer taking on Chris Wade, that's good. Ali Isayev taking on Klitson Obreu is good. Shaman Marais taking on Boston Salmon is also good. Yeah, dude, that prelim card is better than the main card. Holy shit. Or May 6th. Kayla Harrison versus Marina Mock Natakina. Ray Cooper III versus Megamed Umalatov. Anthony Pettis, Miles Price, Rory McDonald, Brett Cooper. Yeah, you should go to this one. Fuck that. Go to this one. That's an easy call, man. And you got Sadabu C, who's good on this card. Larissa Pacheco, Julia Budd, Gleason Tebow, Rory McDonald. Yeah, bro, come on. This is an easy, easy call. May 6th. Plus, you should see Kayla Harrison in person. I believe that. You should see Kayla Harrison in person. She's a special talent. You should make time for special talent if you can. Huge fan here from Indonesia, trying out carbon. If you let it, if you let it, it'll change your life. It'll change your life. I'm trying to finish the job. I still have so much left to go. It's fucking, I can't, I'll tell you, I'll tell you all what, man. I dieted for about a year, for about a year to lose the 45. Now, it doesn't, it should not take you necessarily 12 months to lose 45 pounds. That was a deliberate choice by me to do it slowly to get new habits, to get better at it. But it burned me out a little bit because that's a long time to be in a caloric deficit. Too long, in fact. Too long. Way too long to be in a caloric deficit. Um, I got burned out a little bit. So I definitely have been pumping the brakes. This week, I have really started back. But, um, you know, there's a... The Carbon app, if you let it, it will change your life. And it's not just a diet tracking app. It's a diet coach and there's, there's a big difference between, you know, just counting your calories, which you can do and which can be helpful, versus their proprietary software, which does much more, uh, to me, effective measuring about what you need and what you don't. And um, it changed my life. But I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Do you think we'll see a better version of Nick Diaz in his next fight? I think we'll see a better version of him, but I don't know that we're going to see a great version. Also, who's a good matchup? It's got to be Cowboy, right? How do you like Vittori's chances at 205? Big guy, but I still don't like... Those advantages that he has at 185 by virtue of being big, a lot of that's going to go away at 205. Seems like he'll have a better shot at the title there now than at 185. That's true. Whenever Izzy decides to move up. That's true. That's a fair point, but... Give it a shot if he wants to, but I have a feeling that his... He's also, remember, 27, 28, so he's still got some time. A lot of time, actually. Uh, Drew Weatherhead recently claimed his sister was paralyzed from the waist down after one shot of Pfizer. Info on his Instagram, your thoughts. I'm not familiar with his case. I do like Drew Weatherhead a lot, or his, I should say his sister's case. Um, I'm not familiar with his case. I could imagine that there could be a lot of people who had some adverse reactions, but be the same thing that I've been saying. I, I had a Pfizer booster. Um, so I had two Moderna shots. My first two shots were Moderna, and then my booster was Pfizer. You know, his anecdote versus my anecdote, it's a wash, right, because I'm totally fine, and um, she has apparently a, a very serious and debilitating condition. I don't know what the, the medical evidence for that is, but, you know, you guys want me to get on here and say that the, that the Pfizer 
shot is uh, bad for you, uh, again, there are going to be medical situations where I'm sure that will be the case. But for the overwhelming majority of people eligible to get it ages five years and up, you're going to be totally fine. Did you purchase that shirt pre-weight loss? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, I certainly did. And here's the problem. You're like, oh, we'll buy a new one. But like, I'm not done yet. So like, if I buy a bunch now, that will all be worthless in however long it takes me to get to the next stage. So like, what the fuck is the point of that? Doesn't do me any good. Luke, how can the UFC keep Nate on the shelf without being in breach of contract? It's obvious he wants to fight out his deal. They're probably offering him fights he doesn't want to take. That's how. Because they don't have to offer you fights that you love. They have to offer you fights. How do you think a third Rose Andrade fight will go? Well, it depends if it's three or if it's five rounds. If it's three, I think it goes exactly like the second. Um, if it's five rounds, that to me, a little bit different. A little bit different. But I still think I, Rose would win. Can you talk about your top five shows when you watched growing up? Any like comedy, teen dramas, horror? I didn't watch a ton of TV growing up. This will come as a great surprise to many of you, I'm sure. My mom blocked everything. Um, Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> that was a late bloomer. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. I did love that. I watched that religiously. Hey Dude when I was a little kid. Y'all remember Hey Dude on Nickelodeon? Um, I know. Oh, Simpsons was a big one. Uh, what else did I watch? That, I mean, that might be it as a kid. I watched a lot of news and I watched a lot of uh, and movies. That's really about it. I didn't watch a ton of like shows in that sense. Will you be watching Doctor Strange 2? Motherfucker, I didn't watch Doctor Strange 1. Oh, you mean the movie? Um, yes, I will, I will see it. Luke, you mentioned Adderall helping you overcome an obstacle. How do you feel like your life would be different if you stayed on it? It'd be a train wreck. Um, the major problem that I had when I was on Adderall was that, you got to remember, when I first took it, I needed it to help concentrate because every, my mind was spinning. It was like being on a merry-go-round and it wouldn't, I couldn't get off. I was just you know, being turned and spung and like I would just look at a computer monitor and it, just hours would pass and nothing would happen in front of me. It gave me the capability to get past that. That's what it really gave me. But then what I noticed was it was like the biggest problem I had was that I couldn't sleep. They gave me, I forget what my dosage was, but I remember I had another friend who was on it at the time and his dose was like a third of what they gave me. He was a smaller guy than me, but you know, not like significantly or something, maybe like a 50 pound difference or something like that. Not, not huge. And, uh, and he had like a third the dose. And so what I remember happening was I couldn't go to bed. Um, I would wake up tired. Then you pop another Adderall and then that would fix it because the Adderall would just fucking wire you. But then it would just repeat the cycle. And then, you know, you start losing sleep in an accumulative way. Like you go one day, two day, three day, one week, two week without sleep. Boy, you get to a spot where everything starts running down. You're, you're irritable. You can't think straight. 
you're you're eating too much, you're lashing out at people, you're maybe drinking, whatever else. It really messed me up after a while. I had to get off of it for a health reason. But by that point, I was also in therapy and some other things in my life were beginning to move forward. And so getting off of it to me was not very hard. Everyone, some, some other folks might have different views. You have to talk to them. But that was the issue. So it was great. It was great in a very narrow window. In a narrow window, highly valuable. But that, that window, once it came to a close, duty came to a close like that. <laughs> I'll read it. How do you see Darren Till's career going? Can he be champ or is he going to be working the Friars at P.F. Chang's? Well, I don't know if he'll be working the Friars at P.F. Chang's. But what I would say is um, he seems to be aware now that he's got work to do to get back to where he wants to go. Can he get there? I don't know. He's young enough where discounting him would be foolish, but he's behind the eight ball. Why do they judge illegal strikes to a downed opponent based on when the strike lands, not when it's thrown? Because when it lands is all that matters. I know what you're saying. Like, they can move in the intervening moments, but, like, that's the risk you take if the line is that thin between legal and illegal and when you threw it. What are some decisions you made in your career you wish you made earlier or realized? Uh, okay. One, the place you work will not love you back. Um, a lot of people want to find a world where they love their job. And I do think that having a sense of fulfillment in your job is actually pretty important. But a lot of people, and I made this mistake, you know, they go to a place and they're starting to do work that they find more fulfilling and they begin to get like attached to the brand or attached to the company. And again, I'm not here not to tell you not to make social ties with people or like, hey, if you like your company, you should have pos positive views of it. That That's all fine. But your job is not going to love you back. Like you're going to put all those hours in and you may or may not get what you want out of it. And the brand will let you go as soon as you are nothing to them or for whatever reason, they decide to move on from you. I would strongly caution you to not love your company. I'm not I'm not telling you to hate your company because that sowed seeds of discontent and it's hard to get in front of it. And that's not a recipe for success either. But having an even-keeled understanding that you and your boss, your relationship is transactional. You should always be very aware of that. That's the first thing I'd say. I think the second thing I'd say is, I don't know if I've ever told anybody this, but it's something I've done, I've done a lot of thinking. I, I mean, I would say that this reflects poorly on me and not, and I, I accept that. There's a view when you start out that if you interview a lot of fighters before they get famous, that as they get more and more famous, if you build a relationship, you kind of grow with them and you'll be able to maintain that through the course of their career. That has not proven to be true to me. I have not found that to be true. Um, why is that not true? You'd have to ask the ones who said no to any request I may have made. Um, maybe they didn't see the podcast as or the show I was on as sufficiently large. Maybe they had um, they didn't like me or anything else. Um, but I have found that um, you know there was a lot of guys who I had given a lot of media to when no one was giving them media and I thought oh this will pay dividends when they blow up later and then they blew up and it did not there was I couldn't like out of nowhere couldn't get a phone call returned couldn't get a text answered and I, these are guys I had relationships with for six seven eight nine years very very surprising very surprising one it reflects poorly on me because obviously they saw that I was not um 
popular enough for them. Or, you know, I had one person explain that, and this is fair, that it's not that they didn't think that the show offered value. It's just that if they're going to do an MMA show, why would they want to do five of them? You're talking to the same people. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I understand that. But that's a big mistake that uh, I thought would work out for me better than it has. Um, it, that was not my experience. That was not my experience. Once they got to a level where they were doing like really big stuff and it wasn't slow. Um, I even asked one of them, like, did I do something to you? Like, no, I didn't do anything. You didn't do anything other than not be of service to their short-term needs, basically. Um, you know, I would like to live in a world where recognizing, like, you know, a lot of the fighters that I had on before they were popular, wasn't like I was doing big numbers with them. You know, I was doing this partly as an investment, but I would be careful if you're starting out thinking, oh, what I'll do is I'll just, um, I'll get in early and then as they grow, they'll build me up. That might work for some people. Everyone's experience is going to be different. Uh, that did not, that did not work out for me. I can tell you that. Not for me at all. Um, my experience was completely different. But, I, you know, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to tell them, fuck you. Like, they don't owe me that. So I have to just look in the mirror and kind of accept, um, they did not see whatever else I thought about what value I was offering them. They didn't see it that way. I asked about kickboxing striking system in MMA. Maybe Nikki Holtzkin. Ooh, I love his game. You know what I love about his game? He's so good at um, changing rhythms on you. Bop, 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 da, 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 da. Pop, like, oh, he changes speeds and rhythms. He, I fucking love his game. Um, but I don't know if that's good for MMA or not. I mean, that is good for MMA. I don't know if his total game is good for MMA. Uh, hi, Luke. Thanks for your consistently great work. Thank you, dude. Appreciate it. And then Edwin asks, how do I get a deep manly voice and grow a beard? You got to hit puberty, fella. You got to hit puberty. All right, y'all. Um, thank you so much for watching. Thumbs up on the video. I'll do one more of these just in case. I don't want to leave anyone hanging. Sometimes I leave a one or two people hanging. I don't mean to. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you for everyone who left the donation. Thank you to everyone who watched. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed. I will get the podcast up by tonight. And so we'll get that out a little bit later. Um, okay. Thank you all so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. Clips to come. A whole lot more. Until next time. Oh, you know what? Wait, I got to go back. Hold on. Got to go back. Let's see this. Here we are. Okay. So, until next time. Stay frosty, bitches.